Well, I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome you to church. And for those of you uh, that are visiting with us, we're always glad to have visitors. And uh, we hope that this service will be of benefit to you. If there's any way we can be of any assistance as far as answering questions you may have about our ministry, please don't hesitate to grab one of us on your way out. Introduce yourself. Um, We'd love to have the opportunity to meet you uh, on a first-name basis. Uh, Also, those of you visiting by way of live stream, we're glad to have you as well. And uh, for those of you who men have the privilege of raising children, happy Father's Day. And uh, glad to have you on uh, the day that is uh, significantly less talked about than Mother's Day. Um, And as far as any plans you may have had for a cookout, I hope the cook-in does just as good. Uh, This system that's moving up from the Gulf, I think, is going to keep us wet most of the day. But uh, our portion for this morning is, again, in Esther, Old Testament book. And uh, I'd like to invite you to turn to chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Esther. We'll finish up this chapter. And we've been in this book for, this will make a month, Uh, two messages in chapter 1. And today we'll have a second message in chapter 2. We'll start chapter 3 next week. But in the context of powerful government, and that's what we've been looking at for these two chapters, I suppose there are few words that would gather more attention than the word assassination. And if you were talking about privileged information among the security detail of such powerful governments, uh, knowing or having knowledge of a threat against the safety of a head of state, there'd be few things that would be more important. And as far as our, our passage for today, uh, we see a man come across such knowledge of corruption within his government and what to do with it. So let's begin reading And verse 19, we'll read through the end of the chapter. We'll ask the Lord for help. And uh, then we'll begin. Now, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the King. This is God's Word. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the privilege that is ours to be together in your house on your day with your people and open in our laps a copy of your Word. Lord, open it to us. Give us what we don't have apart from you, and that is an understanding of your word and for the purpose of obedience to it. To understand and obey your word is our request, and we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, let's jump right in. There's some things that we need to do as far as the understanding part, and then we'll get to the obeying part. Part, But if you look at verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, which is somewhat of a time stamp, we're told Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now as far as the second gathering of the virgins, and that would have to do with the gathering of the virgins among whom was Esther who wound up as the king's queen, we don't know what this means. We don't know what a second gathering was. Was it like the first one? Was it different than the first one? 
it would be one of the things that the readers who read this first would likely know what was meant, but it's really hard for us so far from this, as far as culture and as far as a date, we just can't know. So we move on. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Okay, what's the significance of that? Well, this we have other places in Scripture to help us with. And in the ancient world, it was the king's gate or the city gate where most of the business of government took place. So it's likely that Mordecai was some civil servant of some type. This is where uh, legal matters were handled. This is where uh, taxes may have been paid. Uh, in fact, history tells us that the gate at Susa, the citadel, was a massive gate. It even had rooms in the wings for private meetings. But you remember in the book of Ruth, where Boaz had to go to the gate in order to make official his transaction of taking Ruth as the kinsman redeemer. And the way that they signed the contract was that the man had to take off his shoe. The King James say he plucked off his shoe. I always giggled because I thought, I know what plucking is, but to pluck off a shoe, I don't, I don't quite... Things that little kids laugh at while they're sitting listening to their daddy preach. But that's where business was transacted. Um, and that's what's going on here, just on a much larger and grander scale. Have no idea how senior or junior Mordecai's position is. Apparently unimportant to the storyteller because he just doesn't say. Uh, when you get to verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her peoples. Mordecai had commanded her. She obeyed Mordecai, same as when she was young, when he was bringing her up. So here, we're reading this, trying to pay as much attention as we can. And you'll do better with your Bible reading if you read looking for things. If you're the kind that reads it just waiting for something to pop out at you, it's probably going to be a boring reading session. Read with, with, with questions. And when we come across that, between verse 19, where it's talking about the virgins for a second time, and then Mordecai sitting in the gate, and then back to verse 21 where it says, again, Mordecai sitting at the gate. This looks like it's shoved in there on purpose just to remind the reader along the way that Esther still has a secret. She hasn't told anyone. And it's been a while since she's been the queen. And of all the times she's had to talk about this or be asked about this, she's still maintained a secret uh, up until this point. And the difference between her and the previous queen where it seemed to be her personal dignity on the line. Hey, come out so everybody can see you at the party. And she says, no. With Esther, it's her identity as a Jewish, a, Jew, a Jewess. I think that's the right way to say it. Rather than her dignity, it's her identity that's at risk should this cat get out of the bag. Now, the purpose for that, we've got to speculate. I think the, the, the best motive would be for her protection. Mordecai, her adopted father, who's her cousin, thinks that this is the safest bet. Just don't tell anybody. And the reason why is because when you're the king's queen, you need not have any perceivable loyalties besides the king. That could be a problem. Okay, you got this fringe people group who are exiles, and she's one of them, where do her loyalties lie? That would be the question that Mordecai would worry about, that he would make her promise not to tell. But we're going to see as the story unfolds, it's going to have the opposite effect. And later we're going to wonder, had she told them she was a Jew? Could Haman have walked in and said they should all die without Xerxes saying, um, my queen is a Jew, so no. We don't know because that's not how the story goes. The story goes that no one knows that she's a Jew at that point. She has to tell, these are my people and this can't happen. So, let's move on a little further. Verse 21, those days Mordecai sitting at the king's gate 
and then two more names, Bigthan and Teresh. You've got to wonder if Bigthan was Bigtha's brother. <laughs> you know, some people like to name their children similar-sounding names. I tried to do it as opposite as I could because I can't keep my own kids apart. If I made them sound the same, it'd be that much more trouble. <laughs> but what we've got here in these three verses, if you look at them, 21, 22, and 23, are full of details. And in these short verses, there are at least five things, and we can number them out if you want to make points uh, or bullets um, or just kind of chart the course with notes as we go through. First, we see the plot. The plot is an assassination attempt is going to be made. And it's these two men, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the thresholds of their security, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. And uh, actually, assassination attempts were not uncommon in the ancient world. That's really uh, either power changed by an invasion and slaughter and uh, a lot of bloodshed, or it could happen as easy as a coup. And usually, those closest to the king had the greatest chances for succeeding in this area. Because if you're going to overtake the government, you need to do it quickly and you need to have all your places in order. And if the king's got to go, he needs to go fast. And these men are right in the, the, the most successful spot if this is going to work. Uh, we aren't told what motive these two men had. Again, non-important to the storyteller. doesn't tell us. I can think of at least one reason why they might not like the king. He's the reason they're eunuchs. I mean, we talked about this last week. This is about the, the extreme limits of exploitation, both male and female, as you can think about. So maybe they decided they'd had enough. Either way, we don't know. And by the way, uh, Xerxes, that's Ahasuerus, was killed in 465 by a successful assassination. So he dodges this one, but not another. Number two, the discovery. This is verse 22. It came to the knowledge of Mordecai. We're also not told how Mor Mordecai comes across this information. He may have simply overheard it. You know, uh, ever been in a room where uh, you can't hear anything, but you've been in another room on the other side, and it's amazingly easy how well you can hear what's coming out of that room, but in that room you can't hear what's coming in? That's what happened the other day. I was on the mower, and uh, I ran over something in the yard that I didn't put there. Any of you dads who mow the yard, I'm sure you've hit things. Maybe they're your things, like your hammer or whatever else. This one had stuffing inside, and when I hit it, it went everywhere. So I get the boys to come outside and help with this and tell them that they need to look the rest of the yard over. Only thing is, i got a problem with a mower where if I get up off the seat, it cuts off. And then it's locked out, and I have to take that hammer and bridge the relay to get it start. So I can't turn it off, but I need to tell them something. So I have to use about all I've got, right? Well, the neighbors were in the front yard where the mower's not next to their ears. And apparently my voice travels further than the mower's noise. And I think they feared for my children's life. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. That might be what's going on here. You got these two guys talking about what they're going to do, but they have no idea that there are ears listening and that the information's now leaked. So, verse 23, when the affair was investigated, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. He tells Esther, Esther tells the king and gives him credit. That's the report. That's number three. Now, Esther's position as queen actually becomes significant for the first time. Up until now, it's basically just uh, she won the lottery. Good for her. But now, the plot for which the book is written, where God's people will be spared, annihilation, now we see where Esther fits the plan. 
she's actually a relative of Mordecai who just so happens to hear this report. None of these are coincidence. We'll look at that later. But uh, Mordecai gets the information to Esther, who tells the king, gives Mordecai the credit, which seems to be the key emphasis of these three verses. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. That's important, but we'll have to sit on it to see why it's important. Uh, And it would seem, this makes sense as we move forward, that Esther does all this without divulging who she is. Which is also interesting. Which might speak to the disparity between normal, ordinary people outside and people on the inside. That it never gets back. That there's this man walking around the harem checking on this girl. But then this guy's the one who knows the information and is able to relay it to the king through who now is the queen. More than a coincidence. But keep these in your pocket. Mordecai gets the credit. Esther keeps her secret. That'll be important for later. And then, that aside, both Esther and Mordecai's positions, be they what they are, are made a little more secure by putting the empire in their debt by telling the king information that he needs to know. An investment that will pay later. And then number four, there's a trial. The treasonous eunuchs are found guilty. They are executed. And they're probably impaled on poles. Say, mine says gallows. Others say, well, I remember the picture in children's church. They hanged them. Oh, no. Pastor's going to ruin the story for everybody. If you've got an ESV, some of you do, there's a note at the bottom here, and there's a number two next to the word gallows. And if you look at the note, it says, or wooden beam or stake. The Hebrew word is tree or wood. Gallows are made of wood. Poles are made of wood. Stakes are made of wood. So that's not clear. The Persian execution practice, this is from extra biblical history, involved affixing or impaling a person on a stake or a pole. And we can compare this with Ezra 6, 11. And the truth is, From history, we learned that the Romans didn't get crucifixion from out of their own invention. It actually came from Persia, though the Romans perfected it. It seems more likely the hanging was not around the neck, but affixed to a pole, which is grisly and awful. And the cross was even worse. But this is how these... This is what's in the back of someone's mind who crosses the the king. So as as ugly as that is, keep that in your pocket as well to help understand why people are making decisions they're making and why. All right, number five, the record. What happened, including Mordecai getting the credit, was written down in the official record books. And there, that record will gather dust while it ticks like a bomb to explode later down the road. But for now, it's almost as if it's just a formality and it really didn't even happen. Now, from reading ahead and looking at things from a distance, this ought to have resulted in Mordecai's recognition because later he is recognized for what he'd done. And history tells us of the Persians benefactors. It's all through their history of what kings do for people who did them a favor. It's, it's massive. But what's strange here is that Mordecai does not receive recognition, which is weird. He does later. Why not now? Because it's going to be, it's going to be impossible to have this book end the way it should if it comes now rather than later. It needs to come when it needs to come. And this is a situation where Mordecai is going to get his credit, not on King Xerxes' watch, but on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's watch, who's going to use it to save his people. Again, 
this is early. It makes sense the better as we read along. So, that's what happened. That's the understanding part. Got through that a little quicker than we do some Sundays. Does that mean we get out of here earlier? Maybe. (laughs) What do we do with it? And I think it's helpful here just to back up a few steps, gather all our our luggage so far, and then move into chapter 3 for next week. So before we ask what's in this for me, these few verses, um, we need to remember that a couple or three weeks back we mentioned that the first two chapters are, are really introductory. It just sets the stage. We haven't gotten into the real story yet. Uh, Esther becoming queen isn't the purpose for the book. It's part of the book. It's not the main emphasis. All the stuff that Xerxes did, part of it, but not the main thrust. So all of the, the scene is now set. The drama is in place. The tension's building, waiting for resolution. But all of this so far is introductory. And if the emphasis is not on Esther, Mordecai, Xerxes, and Haman hadn't even been included yet, what is the emphasis of the first two chapters? What, what, what are, what's our mind supposed to be loaded with in order to make sense of the rest of the book? And we've, we've made points along the way and, and collected them each week. We learned that there's this massive comparison going on between the empire of the world, which happens to be Persia in this story, but you just pick your slice of history and... and The world always has its superpower. And then that's over against the kingdom of heaven, which none of us have seen yet, but we've heard about, and it's promised to us, and that's for the children, the people of God. Uh, Those who have trusted Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior, expecting His righteousness to get them to heaven and not their own. So we learn about this empire, first of all, that it's inescapable, It's way too big. If you're alive at this point, Xerxes is your king. Same is true in this world. Um, Somebody's in charge. And even if you're Xerxes, you don't know it, but somebody's in charge of you. Also, we learned that it's invincible. Well, it seemed that way. 127 provinces, you're not going to outrun the man. And no single man turns over the whole empire, even though one woman said no, but it didn't do anybody any good. And he didn't do her any good. We learned that it was impressive. That's all that stuff about the six-month-long party and then the one-week-long party. And then we learned it's desirable. Because even though this looks wrong and it looks out of sort and it, it looks like a terrible amount of waste, if we're honest, you know, this is where I enjoy listening to Peter there after the rich young ruler walked away. And then Peter just says, how can anybody be saved? Because Jesus had just said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter's like, well, then we're all in trouble. Because if he just backed the big truck up and dumped all the rich and all the young and all the ruling part, Peter would say, um, better get it while he can. <laughs> He'd been the first to go grab it all up. Who doesn't want rich? Who doesn't want young? Who doesn't want ruler? Everybody wants it. So this is desirable, even if it's wrong or out of priority. It's dangerous. You get on the wrong side of the king, that's the end, and it's an awful end. And then we talked about it being ludicrous, the big joke. This woman said no, and he writes a law that affects everybody that basically says, this emperor has no clothes. I can't control my queen, as if that's the point, which it's not. And then we switched from what the empire is to what living in the empire is like if you're the child of God. Last week we started collecting this list. To those six we added, you live as an exile. They're not at home. Have you ever used that phrase, lovely place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there? That was last week in D.C., I enjoy a visit. The Lord would have to make me live there. It's just, it's, it's, it's too fast. It's too busy. Those roads, I used to, I used to appreciate engineers. I think they're madmen. <laughs> Look, looking at those 
overpasses and underpasses and sideways passes and crooked passes. It's insane. I'm off point. Not only are they exiles, it's not their home, it's not what they were created for. And they'll never understand it, they'll always feel like aliens. They also live under exploitive power. And at any moment, what's yours can be the king's. It's the same as it is today. Um, Jeremiah 17, 9 is the only thing that helps us make sense of this. And it seems the more power, the more exploitive those with power can be. And then last week we finished with those who live in the empire of the world struggle with a tension of identity. That's Esther's two names. She had a Hebrew name and a Persian name. Same with Mordecai. And they're being pulled in different directions. Where do your loyalties lie? Well, let's add some for today. We've got three of these. Let's add three more. So we'll have six and six if you've been taking good notes. To live in the empire of the world is to be very vulnerable. Do you feel like needing to keep secrets is an indication of vulnerability? If everything's cool, if there's abounding trust, why do you need to keep secrets? Well, if information is known that could separate you from what's most important to you, yeah, that... that Probably the definition of vulnerable. That was then in Persia. What about now? You say the wrong thing, and the wrong or right public space or social media can very well be canceled these days. Doesn't matter if what you said is the truth. It just matters what fits the empire of the world at the moment. And either you're with them or you're against them. That's vulnerability. It's no different. It only matters what the mob thinks. Let's add another one. To live in the empire of the world is to expect righteousness to go unrewarded. The first one's Esther's situation. This one's Mordecai's. It seems here, and this will give a little more thought to, um, by the end of chapter 2, that Mordecai is showing an indication of righteousness. We seem to have an official uh, morality marker. Um, Of course, we'll have to go through to get more clarity on this. But it seems that this is in keeping with other passages of Scripture. About a generation earlier from the voice of the prophet Jeremiah, we read through this. I don't know if it was on a Sunday. It might have been Wednesday evening when we were doing more introduction to Esther. Um, Here's what is said in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So this is God speaking through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. The God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it's not Persia yet. It's Babylon Uh, But this is God's business. Uh, Build houses and live in them. Wait a sec. I thought they were supposed to return. Not all of them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and not decrease. A lot said about having kids, doesn't it? This is one of those... Here's the sound bite to uh, ruin me later if you want to. How does this prophet tell these people how God expects for them to evangelize? Have a lot of kids. And where in the world would you want to risk having a lot of kids? In the Bible Belt or in exile? In Babylon? Have more kids in Babylon? Are you crazy? Bring them up in Babylon? Yeah. And tell them about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when you do it. For some reason, we think when things get tricky or sketchy, we get to forget about you know the first commandment God gave Adam and Eve. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. I made you for this. I didn't make you for nothing. I made you f- for this. 
Glorify me. What's more glorifying than God giving you a child which he made unique down to his fingerprints and then handing it back to you and say, you bring it up. I trust you with it. And teach them about me. So they'll teach their kids about me. Again, I got off track. As jarring as this may sound to church-going ears, I say it like that. Mordecai was a loyal subject to a pagan king. We almost think, no, no, no. Mordecai, you're the one for such a time as this. You might be the one to stab him. If you play your cards right, don't tell. But let's keep looking at what, what, what is said. Have all the kids. Look at verse... You're not looking there because I didn't tell you to turn there. But it's Jeremiah 29, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So we got God's sovereignty when he says, I sent you there. And then we've got man's responsibility where he says, you seek the welfare. And when you seek the pagans' welfare... You will have welfare. You're in this together. And that's the way I've arranged it. For your betterment and your growth. The reason why I say it sounds weird to church-going ears, we've got this idea that once you're saved, you never have a bad day. And you never have to stand on your own two feet against opposition. But in this case, I think Mordecai's done the right thing. And if... Someone's saying you got a New Testament verse for this? Because it sounds like what you're saying is you're supposed to do a good thing for a bad man. I don't know if I can do a good thing for a bad man. Well, Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. And what did he do for bad men? That's all of us. Remember, you've got to read your Bibles. Bibles full of bad people and Jesus. Jesus did a good thing for bad people. Perhaps we're never more like Jesus when we're doing good things for bad people. Now, there's a point there. Peter helps us with that. It's better to obey God than obey men. And sometimes you get stuck in a position where you have to choose between one or the other, and God always wins. Man always loses. But until you get to that spot, you can't play that card. Because if you do, it's wrong. Some might say, though... I still think Mordecai got the short end of the stick. And Esther too. And if she's God's queen and God's position on his payroll and his agenda, why does she have to be taken anyway? Why didn't he just handle them like the angel did the Assyrians and wipe them all out? I, I just don't get this. I think the book's messing with us. It doesn't add up. She lives a meaningless life. And Mordecai doesn't get any credit. She's exploited. He's overlooked. Well, again, remember. Read your Bible like we're all sinners. And then there's Jesus. So let me try to apply a, 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 a depravity check to this. Just for contextualization, this won't be the most comfortable part of, of the whole story. But there's one simple answer as to why are these unfortunate things happening to both Esther and Mordecai and everybody else who calls themselves a Jew. And it's because of sin. I mean, if I gave you a quiz, why are God's children exiled? What would you answer? Because of their idol worship. It just so happens this is about two, three generations deep and it's not actually Esther's idol worship or Mordecai's, somebody else's. So that makes it even more difficult. Anybody want to untangle that? Sometimes I get a kick out of untangling knots while I'm fishing. Sometimes they happen. I don't know why it is, but I'll waste an hour of good fishing time just because I have a problem. I think I need to get the knot out. It's really fun when it's in braid instead of mono. Some of you know what I'm talking about and some of you don't. Sometimes we just want to untangle it. Sometimes we just cut it and start over. But that's fishing. What about life? Anybody want to stand up and say, I have no troubles, no problems, no inconveniences, no complexes because of anybody else's sin. Only problems in my life I cause myself. 
Most of us would say, no, the vast majority of them is other people's problems. And I think it's great when you're middle-aged because you, you, you get to look back and look forward and realize there's no such thing as not getting your fingerprints on other people's pages. It just doesn't work like that. So when you look at this and you're trying to have the blame game, was it they or their parents? It's almost impossible to answer it because no one has a clean shirt. Right? So against that backdrop of a sinful group of people who are known as God's covenant people, then we're invited to look at this invisible hand of God that's already beginning to show itself. Two people have been put in place Places of significance by an unseen hand. One young woman is now queen of the Persian Empire. One older man has become the unacknowledged savior of the emperor. It was, if he wasn't around, he didn't tell. He could have been dead. He's his savior. You saved the king's life. Did this happen by mistake? No. And they may seem on the surface to have been coincidence, but once we've began to detangle the story the complex complexity interlocking these things are unmistakable Esther was born beautiful she got picked she won the contest she's now the queen happens to be that her cousin works in the government but who could get a message to the king any other way that's a magic arrangement Anybody else walks in front of the king, they get put on a stick. Unless he says, wait a minute, let him speak. We'll find that out later too. So it's not just, oh wow, that's cool. Mordecai just, I mean, he just has all the luck. He saved the king's life. No. He began the snowball that's going to save God's chosen people. Way deeper than what we see so far. He's going to save the Jews. And then one more. To live in the empire of the world is to expect difficulty, even sorrow. And that's the last point. And you're thinking, boy, you should have put those backwards. Why are you going to let us go off on a rainy day to lunch on Father's Day with an expectation of difficulty and sorrow? You know, good preachers end them happy. Not sad, right? I mean, you're supposed to leave here feeling good. Isn't that what the Bible says? Go to church so when you leave, you feel good. No. The Bible says when you leave church, you're supposed to be good. And sometimes feeling good and being good don't mix very well. Feeling bad and being good works better. This is not orchestrated. This is the way the story seems best explained. Here's the point. We'll have to reach back a little further, the, the, the part of the story that set up what we read this morning. But if you consider what Esther was willing to put up with for the sake of the world's empire. You remember that? Twelve months of beautification, six months in the oil of Olay, I don't know what it was. <laughs> and six months with the other spices and creams and lotions. And 12 months for what? One night. And that one night was only one chance. There's hundreds of other girls in the same contest. A lot of trouble for a little reward, wouldn't you say? Is that any worse than the way the rest of the world works even today? All right, here's what you do. You take all these classes um, so you can get advanced placement in college and then college you're, you're going to want to position yourself at least at the top of the class so that your application will get noticed wherever it is and uh, you know, blah 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 for what? a chance at what? recognition, power, a bunch of money does it work this way in Hollywood? I mean how many people that move to Southern California actually show up on TV and what do you got to have? All the same stuff. Looks, talent, smarts. For a chance. So the idea, we look at this and say, wow, she's got some guts to put up with this 
for only that. We all do it. It's basically the same. But here's where that depravity check comes in. And I think this might be a good word for us. We're always going to live in a struggle between the empire of the world, which we are willing to live by the mantra, no pain, no gain, right? But then when it comes to living in the kingdom of heaven, how many of us are interested at all in the beautification process necessary to present us at the marriage supper of the Lamb? And what are the first things to show up in our prayer request? I'm not having fun now. I'm not feeling good now. Lord, get rid of this trial that's likely to make me much better Christian than I am at the moment. But please get rid of that because I can't take it. Don't we? What would it look like? What's the recipe? Six months worth of the depths of despair. Six months worth of being alone. Six months worth of finding out that you made a mistake. Not on purpose. It's just you thought at the time that was the right job and that was the right house and that was the right school. Only the business went under and now you've got nothing. That was a mistake. It wasn't your fault. But is it useless to the kingdom of God? No. It's very useful. So if we want to ask ourselves... Which do we think we're spending more time in, the empire of the world system or the kingdom of... Just ask, whose beautification process are you enrolled in? And for what end? A chance with Xerxes? Or eternity with Jesus? Jerxes Jerxes is a jerk, yeah. (laughs) Xerxes is a jerk. He only wants what he can get from you to serve his own pleasure. Jesus spent 33 years worth of pain and suffering to make sure that it wasn't a chance, it was for eternity that you spend together. We can cut this as close to the skin as you want to this morning. But um, my father, and I think you've probably heard this before, I repeat a lot of the things he told me, because it made an impression on me. Some of you... The further this goes, the longer I stay, you know, this is daddy stuff he told him. And others of you might, oh, I like the stuff his daddy tells him. I know there's one person who likes it when I talk about the stuff my daddy told me. He's watching on live stream. <laughs> That'd be my daddy. <laughs> um, but... At the beginning, early in school, trying to figure out, is this really what I think the Lord has called me to do? He said, the hardest thing you'll ever have to negotiate is knowing where you're supposed to be. That that, that has been my chief struggle. And he said, you just name it. I mean, go through your list of priorities. You'll need to spend time with your kids. Because you know, the Bible would tell you you're a father before you're a pastor. And if you can't lead your home, you can't lead a flock. Everybody knows that's a disqualification. You'll have to keep your kids. You lose your kids, you lose your ministry. And then uh, you've got to spend time with your wife. Because marriages just don't take care of themselves. No more than anything else in life takes care of itself. Then you'll need to hold hands because people will suffer loss. And if you fail someone in death, you may never get a chance to succeed again. And then you'll need to hide in a hole somewhere and study so you'll know what to say when they're all staring at you once a week. And he just went on and on and on. What sounds like an impossible task. But he said, here's the thing. You can't be more than one place at one time, so you'll have to decide where you need to be. And the world evaluates things basically in bad, good, better, and best. You'll need to land on best most of the time. And you'll need to understand that a lot of folks, what your best is, they'll only think is good or maybe bad. And what is bad, they'll think is best. And you'll find you probably let more people down than you please. But you've got to be faithful. And you'll have to need to know where you're supposed to be. And I thought that was probably the best thing he could have ever told me. And it is my chief struggle.
But I was naive when I heard it first. Here's what I've learned. And this, this will show you how conceited a young pastor can be. I thought that was pastor's advice. It goes for all Christians. You've got to know where you're supposed to be. You can be a thousand places. You could be a lot of other places than this, and the world's going to think that this is the dumb choice. I can't tell you what it makes me feel like to see this place crammed full because it shows me a group of people who know where they're supposed to be. And it's not just this place. It would be any place where this is being taught because above all, this is where you're supposed to be and this is what you're supposed to know. But you can check yourself anytime you want to. The worst doctor's visit you'll, you'll, you'll ever have is just open your Bibles and start reading and see whether or not all your eggs are in the basket of the empire of the world or in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we've been jostled this last 18 months. Status quo was annihilated. Everything changed. The only thing remark remotely close to that, I think, would have been 9-11. And some would say, how could you compare the two? Like this. In 9-11, everyone was sensitive to danger. Real quick, all of a sudden. And the little 40, 50 member church in Halifax, Virginia, when I was barely 20, went to over 100 in one week. And I didn't know what to do. What do I tell them? They're searching for answers. I've got the book that gives it, but what is going on here? But the next week, there were fewer than that and fewer than that the next week. And within a month, we were back to 40 or 50. And the point was, when we've got questions, we'll look for answers. But when things even out, we'll go back to the way we were. COVID's kind of the same. Wouldn't you say? We wanted to get back to where it's supposed to be. And we're, we're, we're about back to where it's supposed to be. Though it's not over and we're not out of the woods. And we've got people within our membership that have COVID now. And we're praying for them because it's a rough go. But I mean, just look around. This is a lot different than it was even months ago. Are you where you're supposed to be? Because it's a perfect time to reevaluate priorities. Things have changed. You know how I know? I went to the beach. I've never seen so many people. So, people can work from home now. So they take work to the beach. What does that mean? It just means the world has changed. We're here, there, and everywhere now. We're more mobile than we've ever been. We're more connected than we've ever been. I can watch a hockey game more places than I've ever been able to. I got more devices than I've ever had. We've broken a few of them lately. It's probably a good thing. You've got more options now. That's what's different about this time. Life was simpler on the other side of COVID. I know that you might think that's crazy. I don't believe it. Believe it. And you can check yourself in, in, in uh, tangible ways. Okay. There's important things mandated in the scriptures having to do with my Christianity. My uh, participation in the local church has to do with accountability with other members. It's all there. I'm an educated Christian. I know it. Do I do it? Let's say the, the, the real important stuff like uh, teaching children the truth of God's word such that when they grow up, they'll hit the road running. We got that in Titus. We got it all through the New Testament. That's what a good church is supposed to do. The church's calendar having to do with those volunteer positions. Has it got more of your names on it or less than before COVID? Now, you know I'm cheating. I can. I got the mic. But it's just one way to say, hey, well, what's important because there's some things that you can do with your kids that are fun, but they're not as important. you got to decide, where are you supposed to be? Life's a buffet. Get what you want. Pay for it at the end. The empire of the world will burn. The kingdom of heaven is eternal gold. You love your kids? Take them to heaven with you. 
Take other people's kids to heaven with you if they don't. Act like this is all we've got. And act like it's a practice. The game's somewhere else. That's eternity. Now, having said all that, was probably about as far as I've ever leaned into this group. If the shoe fits, wear it. And let the Holy Spirit sit down on the, the, the little uh, bench with a mirror on one side and then that thing where they measure your foot and all. Do you still do that? They did it belk when I was little. You had to put your foot on there and they'd clamp it in. There was a lady in Virginia. I won't give her name. But she tried to wear every shoe that ever was displayed from a pulpit. That's not the intention here. The intention is to make sure if there is one, this book does the work of change in your life to make you more like Jesus, less like yourself, and place you where you're supposed to be. Esther is cruising toward a moment where she's going to have to decide, who am I supposed to be? And where am I supposed to be? With that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for what it means. Lord, treat us like a parent and may we respond to correction and may we stick around for what happens after correction, which is restoration, where we grow in leaps and bounds because you've changed us to be more like you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to walk through this book with brothers and sisters in Christ who can help one another make the best of what you've given us to do. Lord, I thank you for a faithful church and not just a wide church with a large embrace, but a deep church who knows your word. Lord, make us deeper, make us wider, make us like you. We ask all this in your precious name.